The poet James Lowell once wrote of a knight by the name of Sir Launfal. Like many knights, he possessed both a castle and much land. But one day, Sir Launfal decided to leave his riches and his wealth to pursue something of even greater value, the Holy Grail, the cup which Christ was said to have drunk from at the Last Supper before his crucifixion, a relic said to grant healing and divine favor. And on the day of Sir Launfal's departure, he passed over the drawbridge to his castle, clad in shining mail atop a strong white horse, his blonde hair rippling in the breeze, and hoisting a lance, he spied a leper, begging alms. And so, taking small pity on the man, Sir Launfal flung him a golden coin from his purse and passed on. Though kind, it wasn't much of a gift, for you see, no one would take even a golden coin from the hand of a leper. Well, Sir Launfal spent his whole life in search of the grail, but he never found it, though he learned much. And at the end of his life, he returned to the castle in defeat. Hair no longer blonde, horse now gray with age, his armor battered and his lances bent. And as he passed over the drawbridge, he spied a leper, the very same as before, begging alms. Then the soul of the leper stood up in his eyes and looked at Sir Launfal, and straightway he remembered in what a haughtier guise he had flung an alms to leprosy. When he girt his young life up in gilded mail and set forth in search of the Holy Grail, the heart within him was ashes and dust, he parted in twain his single crust. He broke the ice on the streamlet's brink and gave the leper to eat and drink. Twas a moldy crust of coarse brown bread. Twas water from a wooden bowl. Yet with fine wheaten bread was the leper fed, and twas red wine he drank with thirsty soul. As Sir Launfal mused with downcast face, a light shone around the place. The leper, no longer crouched at his side, stood before him glorified. Sir Launfal, Jesus said, in many climes without avail, thou hast spent thy life for the Holy Grail. Behold, it is here, this cup which thou didst fill at the streamlet for me but now. The Holy Supper is kept indeed in whatso we share with another's need. Not what we give, but what we share, for the gift without the giver is bare. He who gives himself with his alms feeds three himself, his hungry neighbor, and me. Now the meanest serf on Sir Launfal's land has hall and bower at his command, and there's no poor man in the north country, but who is lord of the earldom as much as he. I'm Dean Delp, and welcome to the Modernist Monastery. <laughs> Thank you.
The Vision of Sir Lawnfall is a poem about seeking for the transcendent and realizing that a great journey is not required to find it. The transcendent is exactly where you already are, and within your grasp if you can see it. Indeed, the great psychoanalyst Carl Jung once said that sometimes modern man can't see God because he doesn't look low enough. That's probably true, even if the transcendent thing you're after isn't a traditional theistic god. Meaning is often found in the things already available to us. But there is another great lesson in Sir Lawnfall's tale. It not only tells you that transcendence can be found right where you are, but also one method of finding it. The thing that showed the old knight where the grail really was was an act of charity, a donation of his substance, a deed of service. For our purposes, we will define charity as the heartfelt and voluntary giving of substance or service to someone else with no expectation of reward. Charity is another one of the handful of universals which grace nearly every spiritual tradition mankind has followed, and this is not without reason. In Buddhism, dana, which is cultivating generosity and charity to others, is considered one of the six perfections. In Islam, zakat is the third of the five pillars and is the mandated giving of funds to the poor and needy. In Judaism, zedaka follows much the same pattern and considers giving to the poor as a serious moral obligation. In Christianity, Jesus, as portrayed by his apostles, emphatically commended to the poor his disciples to such a degree that for centuries afterwards, major saints and theologians would often purposely become poor themselves in giving to others. There are similar standards in Hinduism, Sikhism, and other faiths. So, it's no surprise that in the United States, roughly 75% of money donated by U.S. citizens is to religious charities, and most of the largest charity organizations are religious ones. In fact, the 33% of Americans who describe themselves as devoutly religious make up 52% of all donations and 46% of service hours. Those trends look a little different in other parts of the world, but in many cases those numbers are even more tilted towards religious people and institutions, since in South America, Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, more people are more religious than the United States and Europe. And in every study that's ever been done on the matter, religious people are far more likely to donate to any kind of charity, and are more likely to donate more as well. But charity has a place in plenty of non-religious creeds and organizations, too. You definitely don't need to be religious to be generous and wish to help others. As an aside, though, it's interesting to note that every religion proclaiming the call to charity is also balanced by an equal denunciation of doing it for publicity or recognition. As recorded by St. Matthew, Jesus is thought to have said, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Maimonides, perhaps Judaism's most famously philosophical rabbi, actually divided the quality of charitable giving into a hierarchy that is still cited today. 
It balances both the instruction to give in a way that does not draw attention to yourself, the wholehearted voluntary nature of charity, and the pragmatism so invested in the Judaic tradition. While not everyone, even myself, will agree with each entry, it's both interesting and thorough, and I will actually quote it directly from Maimonides. From least to greatest, said he, there is giving begrudgingly, giving less than you should, but giving it cheerfully, giving after being asked, giving before being asked, giving when you do not know the recipient's identity, but the recipient knows yours, giving when you know the recipient's identity, but the recipient doesn't know yours, giving when neither party knows the other's identity, and last, giving in such a way that enables the recipient to become self-reliant. And now, I'm about to do something which, from the religious perspectives we just mentioned, is completely ironic and totally missing the point. Worse still, it might actually obstruct someone's spiritual progress and encourage a kind of giving which a lot of effort has just been put into warning against. I am about to detail all the different ways that participating in acts of charity, donation, and service can benefit you. But from a scientific perspective, the other one we must consider on this program, there is nothing lost in examining the benefits of such acts, and there are many. So, if you are worried that learning more about the benefits that come to the giver from their giving may cause you to lose the selfless and spiritual aspect of your volunteer efforts, then I thank you for listening, but you should probably switch the episode off now. If, on the other hand, you don't mind learning the scientifically documented personal benefits of charity, then by all means, keep listening. It's often said that it is better to give than to receive. It's a little platitude we hear every time December rolls around in the U.S., but the science actually bears it out. The truth is it literally does feel better to give than to receive. Whether it's an object, money, or a favor, there is a larger and longer burst of dopamine in our brains when we happily give something than when we receive something nice and unexpected from someone else. Consistent charity and service also leads to higher levels of serotonin and oxytocin, too. Oxytocin being the chemical that results in feelings of peace as opposed to pleasure. As you might expect, this means that people who consistently donate to charities and give volunteer hours have measurably more optimistic attitudes, suffer less from depression, and score much higher and much healthier self-esteem scores on psychological evaluation. In fact, in the 2019 World Happiness Report, which recorded charity and financial donation data worldwide, discovered that even by controlling for wealth and other measures of material prosperity, donating money is one of the six best predictors of overall life satisfaction. More than that, there's a lot of evidence that shows giving or serving can work as an immediate pick-me-up, too. Many people who are experiencing a depressive episode or even just a bad day report feeling significantly better after deciding to volunteer or donate. In fact, this is referred to in several publications as a helper's high. And on the donation front, the results were always better if the donation was given in person instead of digitally. A major reason for that is because it can often put you into contact with a community of volunteers with whom friendships can emerge. 
Sharing such pro-social experiences with other people sparks positive interpersonal connections very quickly. But making friends and feeling good isn't the only reward to come from engaging in charity. The Journal of Health Psychology discovered that three weeks of charity donation lowered blood pressure scores in older adults to almost the same degree that beginning a new exercise routine did. And for those older adults, seniors that volunteered on a regular basis ended up with lower mortality rates and living longer on average than their peers who did not. But donating, and especially volunteering or serving others, has benefits for younger and middle-aged people too. In the United States, at least, charitable donations are tax-deductible, and volunteering is great for resume building. Volunteering can develop new skills you didn't have before, and if you're doing something physical, can be a great way to get exercise. In many studies, employers have specifically mentioned that volunteer experience is one of the main things they look for to distinguish between potential candidates. In fact, depending on how large of a company you work for and what kind of organization it is, some large corporations actually offer additional benefits or compensation to employees who document volunteer hours and help in the community. If you aren't working, though, and happen to be a student, then there's lots of scholarships that make community service part of the application and qualification process. So regardless of who you are or why you're doing it, keep track of your hours. Although, as the religious traditions have already cautioned us, it was noted by the Journal of Motivation and Emotion that all results just described are notably less when the person was engaging in charity for self-serving reasons. Still, it's very possible to do the right thing for the wrong reasons and stick around long enough to see those reasons change. So, how can you engage in charity? Well, there are literally tens of thousands of charitable organizations across the world, and I'm certainly not going to list them out or tell you which ones you could or should donate to. Instead, what I'll do is simply give two items of guidance about selecting a charity to donate to or an organization to volunteer for. The first is interest. However you decide to serve and donate, it's best if you can pick a cause that truly motivates you. The world has uncountable problems that need addressing, but pick one you'd like to do something about. Something that genuinely inspires you and that you care about for personal reasons. Be specific and you're likely to find yourself much more invested in what you're doing. The second is locality. While there are many large charity organizations and causes that span the globe, it's often most fulfilling to contribute as locally as possible. We can often get caught up in helping people thousands of miles away and end up with nothing to give to those right next to us. Most of the studies done on charity show that the mental benefits are highest when you can actually see the results of your time and money. Thus, charity in your immediate community is the most likely to be meaningful. Like Sir Lawnfall, your grail is probably right next to your own castle. But what if you don't have a lot of money or time to spare? If you don't have time, donating can be done digitally and in a matter of minutes. If you don't have money, volunteer work is just that, volunteer, and very rarely requires any funding to do. Also, the research shows that the amount you give is far less important than how often you give. Even if it is a matter of mere sense, the consistent giving is what matters, not the quantity being given. 
But even more than quantity or frequency, the most important thing is the quality of your desire when you give. Sir Lawnfall only found the grail when his heart was with his alms. The meaning came not when Sir Lawnfall had given what he had, but when he gave it with who he was as well. I'm Dean Delp, and this has been Charity, Donation, and Service on Modernist Monastery.